0: Richard Feidler, thank you for submitting to this involuntary interrogation.
1: Where am I? Who are you?
0: Trust no
1: one. The level of
0: sedition,
1: anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites.
0: Treason.
1: Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser.
0: The Chaser. Charles, we've got a challenge today. Directions have come down from on high that this podcast needs to be number one in Australia. Oh my goodness, Dom. How possibly are we going to achieve that? By taking out the guy who's number one in Australia, Richard Feidler of Conversations on the ABC. Much loved by the latte set for all of his thought-provoking, insightful interviews. Really? He's number one? Yeah, that guy. But it's all thoughtful and considered and and story-based. You know, this is going to be a bit of an interviewing masterclass. What, for us? No, no, for him. We're trained interrogators. We'll run rings around him.
1: Yeah, Richard Feidler, what an amateur.
0: Let's see how he handles a conversation with a Nauru security guard. Yeah, let's go get him. Richard Feidler, welcome to Conversations Under Duress with Richard
2: Feidler. Name, rank and serial number only. Hello. What is your full name? Richard Allen George Feidler.
1: Have you ever gone under an alias?
2: Yes I, <laughs> yes. I posed as a superhero briefly in the TV series Das Kapital that we made where I was Catboy, ah. a superhero with my colleagues, Tim Ferguson and Paul McDermott. Paul McDermott was the human skunk and Tim Ferguson was Elephant Man. The human skunk pretty much came out of his hygienic habits in regards to wearing his costume. But I was Catboy, yes. So I, I could be easily distracted by dangling a ball of wool in front of me. That's how that was my secret weakness. Was my kryptonite.
1: Did you ever get teased about your name at school? Yes I did. What?
2: Dick. Dick all the time. Dick, Dick. That, and then that got teased that t- a dick Dick Fiddler. And that, you know, again and again and again and again. Yes. It's
0: pretty funny though. Yeah.
2: Yes, it's hilarious, Charles. Yes, it's hilarious. I, I, I did love
0: um, the open-mindedness of, of the ABC in Sydney with with Dick Feidler and uh, Dick Glover. Um, the, two a, the two dicks. The two dicks. Um, this is a very
2: sophisticated interview so yeah. far. Where's this going, guys? wouldn't make master Man, on your Are you really program. border guards? What is this?
1: What is your- Are you uh,
2: flirting with me? Are you hitting on me, both of you? What's this? What's, this? What is, what's going on? <laughs> there are a lot of dicks in the room. Yeah, exactly. So what's going true. on?
1: I thought I knew you. Dom, can I see you outside
0: for a sec? Already? Yep. That's probably not a bad idea. Charles, this is high stakes. Richard Feidler is a master interviewer. He's done this thousands of times. I feel outclassed already.
1: Yeah, I think what we've got to do is we've got to find some dirt on him and then force him to tell us how to do better interviews. What Using all idea. that that material that we've got on him, okay, you know, as leverage.
0: Well, look, he was a comedian when he was young. There must be something. I think he was the, sort of the straightest member of the, the yeah. Duggs. He was the low status. There. He was the
1: low status thing. Oh, we've like got... like me in the chaser. Yeah, that's right. Or
0: you in this podcast? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's go back in. So, Richard, tell us about your young days when you was when you were growing up. Were you were which side of Richard Fidler were you as a young man? Were you respectable conversations, Richard, or were you anarchic? Doug Anthony, all stars, Richard.
2: Uh, Probably all of those things, and there's many sides to Richard Feidler, Dom Knight. I find I was all of those things. I was I was nerdy and and, um, bright, and probably quite annoying as well. Um, I got into an OC school in Sydney, uh, which was great. They were were my happiest years of of schooling, I think. Actually, where where in Sydney? Uh, In uh, Sutherland. Oh, right. Yeah. In fact, I was in the same OC school, but in a different class from Warren Brown, who is the cartoonist of the Daily Telegraph, and we didn't know each other, even though we were in the same school at the same time, in side-by-side OC classes, because they tended to stick to their own for some reason. We, we often talk about that. So, you were hothousing. You were a part of it. I was hot-housed. Hot-housed for nerds. Yes, I was hothoused for nerds, yes.
1: And what was the worst thing you did as a kid?
2: Oh, God. Pranks? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, I, I remember something now. It's a story my father used to like to tell, Alan, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, apparently my, my, my parents had some friends who were coming to stay. We were living in Melbourne at the stage and they were staying at a motel because the motel was kind of a new thing. This is the late 60s and I was a little kid, very little, very little kid. And dad said they'd had a couple of drinks around the pool and I was all of two or three or something like this. I have no memory of this. But dad turned around because he heard a bit of a commotion and saw me, young Richard, young Dick, in fact, pants down, a giant arc of urine uh, emanating from my, my small to- small body, a giant arc of urine going right into the pool. And unfortunately, there was someone seemed to have poor eyesight coming up <laughs> in the lane doing the breaststroke, and Dad leapt up to sort of stop some disaster, which could have been ugly in itself because you never try and pick up a kid with this, with, you know. In so many respects. Like that. <laughs> <shouldn't>. so, indeed. <laughs> With urine <laughs> jetting out of him, you don't do that. He didn't do that. He didn't get to me in time. But fortunately, uh, the, the the breaststroke swimmer saw me and looked up and said, quite memorably, "Don't pee in the pool, boy. Turns the water green." Oh wow! <laughs> Went around me and swept. That that's a pretty bad thing I did there. I mean, you should never pee in the pool.
0: When we stepped out, we were trying to reset the interview, so it wasn't right. about dicks. But thank you for taking us. <laughs> oh, so it's my fault that, now. It,
2: so it's my fault now. We're just
0: grasping we're, for status here. We've got that's a hand. Handle on you, Fidler. So, look, tell us about when you started comedy, having been quite a straight kid at times. Mm-hmm. When did this begin to blossom in your
2: life? Well, I started busking. I did a lot of music in high school, and I was actually a drummer and played drums in some punk bands in Canberra. That's where I went to go to uni. Yes, people got punk bands in Canberra. How is such a thing possible? But a moment's reflection would tell you that punk makes perfect sense in a place like Canberra, or it it certainly did in the early 80s. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it's all about make-your-own-fun, anti-apathy sort of ethos that was around it. And when I say punk bands, they weren't sort of like – it it wasn't sort of like hard-driving – um, you weren't the Zex Pistols, basically. N- no, no, we weren't, you know, UK subs. We, we were kind of more the, like, again, the quirky end of that sort of thing, more like the go-betweens end of things, I suppose, rather than <laughs> so you're UK you were as punk subs. as the go-betweens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were pretty punk. They had oh. heroin. <laughs> yeah, that, there is so, that. So there. There is that. Yeah. Um, they hung Beautiful around. The, Beautiful melodic pop. They, but, they opened but for the birthday party. Okay, so so I so I was part of those kind of bands, but and I, I loved it too. You uh, were as wild as Canberra got. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. That's probably <laughs> overstating things. But I was also a busker. I taught myself to play guitar. I had a lot of music edu- music education, so I, I could figure out how to play guitar. And that's when I started busking with Tim Ferguson, who was a hippie in an orange sheet in the middle of Civic in Canberra when I first met him. And, really? Yeah. An incredible performer. He was with Canberra Youth Theatre at the time, and quite explosive as a sta- street performer. So he and I started performing together. We had another guy in our group for a while, Robert, who lovely guy, who's since gone off to run, well, not run, but be a major figure in the United Nations Development Project, the UNDP. And, well, so he yeah. sort of wasted his life. Yeah, well, he's wasted his life helping people. Mm. He's wasted his life helping people. And then Paul McDermott came in. I love the moment, this idea that in the middle of
0: Civic, which is, I think, the only place where there's ever more than two people in Canberra at one point in time, you and Tim Ferguson, did the eyes lock? How did that Moment actually unfold where you you became a, a duo.
2: Well, I I think he needed an accompanist, <laughs> and I need someone who could actually perform. The only guitarist yeah, in yeah, that's in right. whole well, Canberra. Well, I wasn't really, but uh, but yeah, that did seem to make sense. It's hard to kind of remember how how that made sense, but I do remember seeing first time I ever met him. I saw him on stage in this kind of makeshift stage in Canberra, wearing an orange sheet, performing a song he'd written called "The Mutant Opera," where the um the the, the hook line to it was simply him shouting in a kind of wild sort of way: "Fuck the mutants! Fuck the!" mutants, fuck the mutants and, and I went, that boy's got something, there's something there um, What's the orange sheet about? He
0: was a hippie <laughs> yeah,
2: fair enough,
0: Hare Krishna kind of hippie yeah. or
2: what do you reckon? Yeah. Why else do you wear an orange sheet? No, it wasn't Harry Christian. Was Harry. he an Orange person? No, no, he wasn't. But uh, he certainly knew a couple, that's for sure. He was sort of hanging around on the, the, the fringe of all that. But it wasn't hard to direct him. that wasn't really his style anyway. He was kind of the Pink Floyd end of hippiedom that was easily directed towards the punk end of things. So right. you were the Pink Floyd end of punk and he was the Pink Floyd No, no he end was the Pink Floyd end of hippiedom.
0: Yeah, something like that, yeah. And so the two, I, I guess it was almost inevitable really, given how small Canberra is. You were the two people out there doing something, yeah. and you went from there. Yeah. And how about uh, how about Paul?
2: Paul was an art school student, and he was performing Aren't with the a group. Yes. He was performing with a group called Gigantic Fly, who were wonderful. They did kind of parodies of old 1930s, 40s, 50s movies uh, with a bit of music as well, and he had this beautiful voice. And we were sharing a stage at one point in Canberra, and when Rob left to go overseas, it made sense to ask Paul to join the group, and that's where we took it from. And where did you get the name? Yes, Now, you see, that's that question, isn't it? Yes. There's the question right there. Yeah. We've told a lot of stories about that name. The first time the group went to uh, – can I get – this, this is a slightly long story. So, st- there's a story oh. behind this Behind this story. The story is we form a group as a group. We're playing in Melbourne uh, full-time as a group, struggling to make an impression there. So, we decided to leapfrog and go to the UK, to Edinburgh. We got on a plane, 87, arrive in London. First day we arrive, we go to Covent Garden and busk, and it works really well, and we make 50 quid, which is a lot of money in 1987. That's great. Certainly, you know, if you're scrounging – comedy group and you just arrived. Mm. And as we finished, uh, an evening standard journalist came up to us and asked us, was doing Vox Pops around the area, about a proposed commercial redevelopment of Covent Garden. And they asked me for my opinion. And I gave a very earnest reply, which is really stupid. I said, well, heritage area, blah, blah, blah. Oh, so Conversations Feidler was was there in the moment. Yes. Conversations Feidler came out of its ugly cave at that point and gave a very pompous and slightly earnest answer. So, of course, I I picked up the paper the next day and, you know, they have that that kind of chain of photos down Mm. on the op page of the Vox Pop. Uh, what do you think of the proposed redevelopment of Covent Garden? You know, du- XYZ said this, that, or that thing. And I get the end and you see me there. And they it's, said, it's, they don't get more Aussie than Aussie comedy group the Doug Anthony all stars. Struth, says Richard, the idea stinks more than Dingo's Breath after a night on the (laughs) forex and we went you fucking assholes (laughs) you You tabloided bastards so we made a decision then to tell monstrous lies about ourselves given that the british could only see us Mm. as these barry mckenzie uh les patterson's uh, barry humphreys type creations we thought we'd work with that and twist it round so whenever they they asked us our origin story instead of telling them the truth which is we were middle class kids from canberra we'd say we grew up near alice springs in a sheep station lived in adjoining sheep stations and <laughs> there was nothing out there, but we, we, we somehow discovered, you know, Proust and Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, and, and and at this point, the interviewers in England get really excited. The idea of culture flowering in the desert seemed like a beautiful miracle to them. And they said, but where did you get the name from? And at that point, I got angry with this journalist from the Times and said, you don't know who Doug Anthony is? And he said, no, no. <sighs> He was a Labor-reforming Prime Minister of Australia who was assassinated in office on the 11th of November 1975 in a plot where the CIA were heavily implicated. And you don't know about that. He said, I've never... I heard something happen around that time. Yeah, well, there you go, you know. And Paul, uh, Paul this is the big lie theory we practice. Paul would then get quite tough on them and say, you know, you've got to get out of your own little world. You know, England isn't the kind of nation that doesn't rule the waves anymore. You don't own the world anymore. You've got to be a little more curious about stuff that goes on outside your tiny little world. And he went, oh my God, that's so true. And they printed it in the Times. Yes. It's total bullshit story, and we just told more and more bullshit stories. It was, so, there was a lot of fun. So, that's that's how we got the name. But it doesn't actually explain
0: why of all the people, Doug Anthony. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Brilliant. Alright. Charles, can we just take a moment outside yeah, sure. to digest that? Disparaging Australia's reputation in the mother country, that sounds to me like the beginning of a
1: of a case. Yes, I think so. Um, we may need to check up on his citizenship as well. But, yes, he um, could be a dual citizen. He's a little bit un-Australian.
0: Okay. Well, I, I let's. I think they do more things in the UK after this. So let's probe into that area, shall we? Yep. Sure. Richard, lovely story. We we're just talking about how much we enjoyed it. Thank um, you. You guys got terrible bladders. Oh, look, it's just it's working for Peter Dutton. And it stresses us out. Okay. Look, uh, you then stayed in the UK, you did a whole bunch of things there and mm-hmm. won a very prestigious award. So No, we
2: didn't. You didn't? No. No, we came runner up. We, we came runner-up for the Perrier Award and people printed that as we'd won the Perrier Award. I've read
0: for years, I, I've been jealous no. of your
2: group on the basis that you won the best award that there is. No, we never did. But but, but there runner was a feeling- pretty good, mind you. There was a feeling at the time that we were robbed and that was mm. widespread. We were the most popular actor at the festival that year. Widespread amongst your group? Widespread <laughs> amongst our group and yeah. the people who liked us. Yeah, there was a feeling that. But one of the judges was sort of, we were a bit nobbled by one of the other groups who were up for it, who, who didn't win either. But they, they were sort of implying we were secret Nazis and... Wow! Yeah, I mean, it was true, but it's not a nice thing to say, is it, <laughs> about someone? And then you toured around Europe. Yeah, didn't yeah, you? that's right. Yeah, we played it. We played it. Um, there was a we played it the Barcelona Olympic Games. There was a big arts festival as part of that. And of course, we don't speak much Spanish, other than Hola and Si sí, and No and Cuándo and Cuesta and that sort of stuff. I, I think the last one was Italian. Anyway, um, but but we were able to communicate with art. With these people, we performed on the last night of the Olympics in the big city park in Barcelona for this huge crowd, family crowd as well. Paul McDermott, really fine painter, he he got a huge sheet, and he um he he was able to do a painting of the Olympic mascot that year, which was a a dog called Kobe. I remember the dog, yeah, drawn by the Catalan artist Mariscal. and Paul could do that style, just replicate it perfectly. But when we unfolded the sheet at the end it was an image of Kobe hanging by a noose <laughs> dead with like crossed out eyes and with it, it, his bowels had opened as people as, as happens to people when they, when they're hanged and it said Kobe es or something like that. Kobe is dead. And the response we got was just fantastic. Like it was everything you want. Like, Mothers were shielding their children's eyes and reeling in horror. Other people were getting to their feet and giving us a standing ovation. They were so tired of all the the marketing, intense marketing around the Olympics. It was everything we could have ever wanted.
0: One of the things that was really amazing about your group was how strong the different, uh, I guess, personas were Mm. in the group. I mean – you know uh, Paul, of course, keeps that persona to this very day whenever he does anything. But how did that evolve? Was it really who you all were, or what did you realize that it kind of worked with as an internal dynamic?
2: To some degree, um, although yes and no, um, I think that I think we all have different aspects of ourselves that we used to bring out in those characters to to some degree. Initially, we we're all very hyper aggressive but then that just became becomes monotonous. Mm. And on stage, particular, uh, on stage, maybe that's okay. You can get a kind of degree of ferocity. And we had an approach which was to have all guns blazing at the same time. As soon as we started to put that on TV initially, it just looked like a mess because you know, TV is sequential. It's one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. And if you fire everything at once while on stage, that looks amazing. On TV, it just looks like a mess. So it wasn't until we started working on the big gig with Ted Robinson that we started to really – break things down like that, unfold the act, make it work for TV, and these characters uh, were already there, but they sort of became more and more striking so that uh, it could work uh, and we could take that into other realms. And what was your character? I was the hyper-aggressive, violent, incredibly sexual human being, bit, the most attractive person in the group, I think. No, wait, that was the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be a part
1: of every joke, yeah. Richard. Did that rub off on your team dynamics stage?
2: Off stage, there was always relentless hazing, relentless <laughs> hazing and constant work, hard work. Yeah. I think the only comedy group I've met that works as hard as we ever did is you guys, actually, I think. Maybe not you two. I don't know. You, you're probably the slack end of the Chaser team. I don't know. But the chasers, Chaser guys, you always work really hard, and I was always really impressed by that.
0: We are the ones doing um, poorly prepared podcasts. You so. are. Um, but in terms of the internal dynamics, I'm just wondering, given that the group's touring now, have you got beef with Flacco, who's taking your not role? At all I think
2: it's a fantastic idea. I, I mean, I don't want to do it. Um, Why not? I, oh, I don't want to revisit my 20s. I like what I do now much more, much more. And um, I've got a whole life, you know. I've got a, I don't want to get into Stinky Tarago again. But not having me there means, and having Tim in a wheelchair, now that he has multiple sclerosis, and having Flacco or Paul Livingston instead on guitar. It's created a different dynamics. forced the group to reinvent itself rather than, you know, just rehash the good old days. Because I don't like nostalgia either. I'm not a nostalgia fan Mm. at all. It is different. It's extraordinary. I had them on a different radio station
0: um, last year and they came and did did the song about Tim being in a wheelchair and it was just so funny. And uh, Paul being Paul completely exploited the dynamic of, Mm. You know, don't pity him. You know, you'll yeah. insult. It was just so, still so sharp, but
2: nothing like what you guys used to do. Mm, yeah, that's that's entirely a, a good thing. I think. Like I remember, like a, a friend of mine was um, from Canberra days, massively into punk music. Was, was so excited when the Sex Pistols reformed in, was it, the late 90s, I think, or something? And uh, in their 40s. And they, you know, Sid Vicious couldn't be there, obviously, so they got Glenn Matlock in on bass instead. And he was so excited about going to see them because he'd never seen them back in the day. He was too young. And so he went to see the Sex Pistols play in Sydney. And I asked him how it was afterwards, and he went, yeah, it was great. And I just thought, do you want to be remembered? Yeah, good. Do you? No. So it's good. That rather than reform the old group, uh, which, like I said, is something I would not want to do anyway, reforming and changing and having a different dynamic on stage, is entirely a good thing, and for the very first time, for the very first time in the history of the Doug Anthony All Stars, Paul is the tallest person in the group.
1: <laughs> when you were sort of you're in your twenties, it got pretty rock and roll there for a while. Mm. You had lots of groupies,
2: jokey's Tim Tim called them. Yeah, were they was that good? No, no, not at all. Not in any way, actually. Um, that was weird. We we always thought of ourselves as a kind of counterculture act, you know you know, Sex Pistols being an influence along with other things as well. And then once we got on TV, we sort of mutated into the Bay City Rollers suddenly. And we had, I remember that year Go, was it 89 or something? When we first started doing the big gig, we were doing a season at the Comedy Festival and all these teenage girls came along and started screaming, screaming. in our songs, the end of our songs, and gee, yeah. that's that's a real comedy boner. Where, where
0: was the carefully cultivated irony?
2: I know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, what are you doing? And, and that was horrible. Um, We're very uh, fortunate then in the chase of not to have not had to,
0: that not little to have of attract, success.
2: Attracted that. My my sister would have been one of them. Okay, well, please thank your sister for. Her, her, her kind enthusiasm. She's for the actually group. here now Is while she? you're tied, <laughs> de,
0: tied up in her interrogation center. So, look, tell us about TV because it's not always easy to translate uh, a great live outfit to TV. Obviously, the Big Gig was a good way to do that in the sense that that was a live show, but then you went on to do your own. Series was it challenging to do your own series?
2: Well, uh, you mean race around the world? You're talking about that or Mount No? The, no, das I Kapital. mean Des yeah, Oh, yeah. that right. Oh, Des Capitale. Yeah, hell yeah. We had to figure out how to make a sitcom, and we had some what I, what we thought <laughs> were very big and empowering ideas at the start. which turned out to be a nightmare once we had to make it because I don't think Ted had Ted had made something like a sitcom in the past. Ted Robinson, mm. a director producer, but we were all trying to figure it out. At this, the where start. were the glitter cannons? Yeah, exactly. And and we had this idea like. We want to do something sort of sci-fi. And Tim said, but instead of in space, we'll put it in a submarine because no one's done that before. Okay, at the bottom of the ocean and we're trapped down there with all the artefacts of the world's, world's culture because this was very early 1990s the Berlin Wall had come down Russia had just collapsed and there was that thesis going around that it was the end of history that the, the mm. world <laughs> the world was Seems coming around bizarre now but to, I studied at uni yeah. yes this, this, this consensus that liberal market economics and liberal democracy was the ultimate kind of end point and history wouldn't much progress beyond that so we'd, we'd reached this it was sort of like five minutes of the future when everyone had reached this end point and there was no need for culture anymore because there was no tension the so, only comedy series derived from the work of Francis Fukushima. <laughs> yes, that's right. Fikiyama. That's exactly. Fukuyama, Fukuyama yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> Fukushima. is yeah. like the anchor. Yeah, whole other thing. <laughs> whole other catastrophe. And I'm not even going to edit that because that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is pretty good. And so we thought, we'll put ourselves in a submarine. But how do you get people to visit a submarine? I mean, how do you get people coming in and out? So we had Flacco in a magic box or something, which is really, really silly. And so the second series, we put it in space after all which <laughs> would seem to work much better because yeah, t- people could just walk in Crawling the back run. to... Th- yeah.
1: I, I do remember thinking in that first series that the premise itself was brilliant, <laughs> but you, you, you sort of lost track of the premise within oh, yeah. about five minutes of
2: starting to watch the show. Yeah, like, yeah. I think, I think yeah. we... Um, I, we thought we could sort of do something like The Goodies. Um, I mean... what was it Young ones? Was there a Young yeah, ones? Yeah, Young ones was... There? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Young ones was... was it, but I think they had a stronger through line than we did. But The Goodies could actually have this this incredibly far-fetched and surreal um, approach. That's what we thought we could do as well. We thought we were kind of working on that that approach. It is very hard, though, to
0: maintain something that that is as high concept as that. I mean, for instance, a podcast that involves interrogations but keeps devolving into just fun chat with someone we like. Can I That's my quite
2: difficult. Can I do my favourite gag from that series that I still live? This is one of Tim's gags where I, Flacco was arriving as an alien and was sort of knocking on the door of our spaceship and there was a, you know, what is it? He goes, it sounds like Morse code. What, what are they saying? Open the <laughs> dook. You <laughs> this voice go, <goes, laughs> the door, the door <laughs> oh, from inside. <laughs>
0: That still works for me. So having done all that stuff with the group, at what point did serious Richard Feidler emerge from the chrysalis? (laughs) Because you mentioned before race around the world. I mean, Mm. did you feel at one point, uh, what was the moment that made you decide to do the solo stuff?
2: First oh well all. i wasn't going to do I, I, I had a whole other idea i wanted to get out of that kind of world altogether it's you know i don't know if you've noticed this but whenever you say turn your back resolutely on television you go that's it i don't want to work on tv um i said i'm going to have to do new media I, I joined a company briefly in the uk i was going to do stuff with them uh, animation i was learning animation at the time and i'm going to do that yeah 3d modeling i was really enjoying it too um and then uh, I had to come back to Australia, and I got a TV offer, and it kind of looked like fun, so I said, oh, "Okay, sure, sure." And then I got another one, which was raced around the world, as a result of doing this other show, mouthing off, and and I said no at first because I I didn't like the sound of it. I thought the sound of it it, it sounded like it was going to be like Simon Townsend's Wonder World. <laughs> um, <but> the producer, <laughs> the thing, word "world" is the word. Yeah, yeah, the world thing in it. And uh, then Paige, the producer who I knew, said, no, 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 no it's not going to be like that. Come around to my house. I'll show you these kind of audition videos. And I saw Kim Trail's audition and John Saffron's video. And I, and I went, oh, okay. You do stuff like that. Sure, this looks like fun. So that's that's how I became the host of Race Around the World. TV does always drag you back in. And um, I'm you happy don't
0: to, want it. to ask Andrew Denton about that on his new interview show <laughs> at some point.
1: <laughs> Especially if you're a white man in Australia. Yes. It's actually a compulsory requirement.
2: To oh,
0: completely. here on air.
2: Absolutely. How lucky am I? And it's okay
0: you? That, that, that we keep doing that because we're aware of it and that makes it that all makes fine. That makes it all fine. And so I guess in that, did you feel free of the burden of being part of a group where everything's funny? And no, certainly-
2: no, I didn't, and I think that was a mistake. I, I was trying to always, always trying to sort of bring something comedic into television, which I think now is was you know, that's just a bit too, too much like hard graft in a way. So when I started doing radio, uh, it was a lot easier. You allow yourself to be once you drop that need to be ha 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 funny. Which that sounds unbearable when you're trying hard to be funny all the time. Mm. I mean, you're try, trying to do stand-up comedy on radio is almost unlistenable. I find it is. It is such a
0: great thing to just be interesting. And speaking of that, actually, Richard, um, can I ask how do you leave your youthful comedy group behind and become a respected ABC presenter? Um,
2: respected. I've it's tried. tried. It's I've tried tr- for years, oh, and yet here okay. I am on another bloody chaser project. I mean, do you think this isn't any kind of border interrogation at all? This is career advice. What is this? We, this is right. just
0: Dom. Wants we have to. Know. to we basically How have to get our team. career advice at gunpoint at this point in our careers. It's the only way anyone will try to help us out. <laughs> it's too dangerous
2: helping the enabling the chaser is not a safe thing to do. I know. I've always been a very curious person. I think I, like <laughs> you know, curious, weird, curious, curious in, in a whole lot of different things. And I spent. I, I've often said this. I I spent those years on tour with the Doug Anthony. Also, I was doing a lot of reading because there was no social media. I couldn't like constantly check Twitter. So books were my only um, entertainment source while spending hours and hours and hours sitting in a tarago or waiting on set to do things. So I, I read an enormous amount, a lot, a lot of history and a lot of this and that, a lot of literature and uh, a lot of comic books, a lot of t- tons and tons of stuff that I think sort of prepared me for a, um, a, a life asking questions of people or just finding out things. And I also got an, art, I did an arts degree in at uni as well and i think that kind of, kind of gave me a, a very nice background I was always advised not to do that don't do an arts degree it's no job at the end of it mate. yeah i don't i don't buy that at all hey all three of us in this room are, are arts graduates arts graduates yeah mm. look at us now <laughs> king of the world do you own the studio do you own this, this chair do you no
0: not at all no. Um, no shares in the company that's that's rove but i think um, I,
2: th- I think the thing that happened though is that allowed me i was allowed found i was very, very had the great good fortune of being given a forum where I could just indulge curi- long-form curiosity and ask questions. And so what you're saying is that you're genuinely interested? I have to be. I have to be. I can fake interest for 10 minutes but not for an hour. I have to be genuinely interested. Otherwise, it just sounds terrible. And you can tell <laughs> when, if I'm not interested... You, you might imagine that I'd suddenly start to sound flat, but it's just the opposite. I actually start to get really hyper. I and, completely understand. Oh, I and see try and what you're it saying. And try it the other literally. way around. And I listen back to it and I go, oh, God, I just want to put knitting needles in my throat. When That's, I a, really yeah. That's yeah, a really interesting that, <laughs> point. That's a really great point. Thank <laughs> you so <laughs> much for sharing yeah. that with us. Oh, what was it like? Great. Mm. And it's just terrible. And I just feel, I feel like it's such an act of bad faith. How to, often does that happen to do that? these days? Hardly ever because we do vet... People pretty thoroughly, and but that doesn't mean to say they're good or bad people, they're just what's suitable for the show, what can sort of intrigue me or get me asking questions for an hour about someone. So I think about it quite a bit and talk a lot with the producers about it.
1: So, so but you started off with a mega long show, didn't you? Like, it wasn't it, didn't they give you four hours? I mean, to th- four hours, yeah, no.
2: Wasn't no. your slot eleven till three? Oh no, no. There was a, there was a conversations program between eleven and midday. That yeah. was hour long, and then I had a break for lunch and for an hour, and then I did um uh, one till one three. till three. Yeah, yeah. still so a, a very long shift, show. though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a different kind of show though. That was a a local uh, ABC radio like radio show. You know, being part of the life of the city, being much more improvisational, getting in time traffic, weather, what's happening, stupid stuff, comedic stuff, just much more by the seat of my pants radio.
1: And were you forced to do that in order to be able to do conversations? Yeah. Was that-
2: that Not forced really, but I I was kind of keen to do an apprenticeship in radio because I I sort of see myself as an eternal student and there was so much I I wanted to know about radio and actually doing that thing of doing a local radio show in a city- and I was doing it in Brisbane at that mm. stage. And the, Brisbane was full of, you know, this is a time of the Brisbane floods. This is when you can have like this incredibly violent and intense weather in Brisbane where there'll be a massive hailstorm in the whole. At one point I was doing a show and the, kind of the roof of the newsroom of the ABC caved in because of a hailstorm that was so mighty. I mean, Brisbane... No, no, you know, people shouldn't live there. It's just too dangerous to live there. The weather. <laughs> well, is the sometimes. ABC studios in Brisbane were a very dangerous place they were, to work. They were. and we had to get new ones in um,
0: Southbank. Yes, that's right. But um, how did you evolve to just doing conversation? Was it a thing of you saying, "I look, I just want to focus on this," or did the bosses say, "Actually, Richard, we think one hour is really your
2: <laughs> your métier. You have delighted us enough <laughs> for one one hour, young man." No, it was. I couldn't do the work anymore. It was in, in, insane, um, insane amount of work. But also, conversations was growing, and it was going into Brisbane and Sydney, and then into Adelaide, Perth, Hobart, and then nationally, and more and more, the, the audience was getting larger and larger, and the podcast was becoming much more of a thing. It, initially it was just the thing we just put together at the end of the day uh, to put on the website, and then podcasts started to really take off, and then I started listening to more podcasts, and then I went on a Churchill Fellowship to meet This American Life and Radio Lab and people like that, to, mm. and that changed the way I'm, how I make the show How as a podcast. How did, you, how did it change the way you make the show? Well, it sort of led me to focus in on the whole idea. I mean, I was doing this to some degree already. I think Pam O'Brien, the producer, and I were sort of feeling our way towards something like this, but the hour conceived as a narrative arc where you have a spine of a narrative and you have uh, that sort of ends, you know, where it's going to start where the beginning, middle and end are going to be and what information, how it's going to be dispersed through the course of the hour and the ideas that you follow through the end and the approach to the whole thing. And so in a way it was kind of confirming our initial ideas and, and prejudices, if if you like, with this approach. And it was really good to talk to people uh, like Ira Glass, who was the host of This American Life, the creator of it. Mm. And all these kind of shared sympathies came into play about, yeah, this is what we do. This is the kind of questions we'd like to ask. This is the way we'd like to approach it. This is what you don't want to do. And also encouraged us to keep working on sounding like normal human beings rather than being ABC presenters or that idea that the, pre- to wreck the idea of the, uh, the presenter as a high priest or priestess, this person who has the knowledge that dispenses it to a grateful nation through the microphone. I mean, that's crap. I mean, you're not that person. You don't know everything. You are not an omniscient. Ira Glass calls this the mask of omniscience, and it's just not right. So be honourable and honest and say, be asked questions. Show your curiosity if you feel it. Um, And if you don't know the answer so you don't know. If you get it wrong, say, oh, I got it wrong. Um, yeah, and be, be be inquisitive. Allow yourself that curiosity and humour.
0: I think the second day I worked at ABC Radio, Ira Glass actually came into the session about how they put this American life together, and what really stayed with me is that they do th- I think it's 30 stories they start investigating for every one episode yeah. that goes to air, which is just astonishing. Charles, we haven't yet <laughs> discarded one of these interviews yet without using it, but I'm, I'm interested to oh, know. I, I think that's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. How, <laughs> do you, <laughs> how do you do it every day? This is the thing that's extraordinary is you've managed to keep the quality up so much over the years while making it a daily product. Is that, is that Work really,
2: really hard. I think that's it. just work really, really, really hard and spills over to weekends and work late at night, you know, all these things. We work really, really hard on the show. I also like to think I'm a quick study too. I've got that, um, I'm not a lawyer, but I've got that kind of lawyer's ability to master, well, to read a brief pretty quickly and to read a book very quickly and distill it in my head, go, this is what's interesting. This is how I'll tell this story and make it work for radio and then get a sense of it over the hour. I and mean, part of that is experience too, knowing knowing how many questions I'll need, how much information, how many stories I'll need over the course of the hour. But yeah, just hard work a lot of the time. What is the secret sauce that makes an interview
0: great? I remember um, when I did your show years ago, you mentioned that having a small room was was uh, important, and I hope you appreciate we've found the smallest interrogation room yeah. at our disposal for this chat today. What, what do you think it is that makes your show, just stepping outside it for
2: a moment, different? Uh, is it the length? Is it the conditions? What is it? Yeah. Um. Yeah, the length of it, having a sustained narrative over an hour, the idea that you don't just drop in and drop out like you do sometimes with radio, that you actually, it requires a sustained listen, if you like. And that's why it works well as a podcast, I think. That approach of not being omniscient, like I said, even though I'm, I pretty much know exactly what the guest is going to say most of the time, I, I, I don't try and impinge upon them like that and, di- and forcibly direct them one way or another. Uh, the fact that I do the reading, I do read the books. I do read the books of the the guests who come on. I do take the time to acquaint myself. I mean, you guys have done how many interviews and how badly prepared are they often? I mean, to be honest, really? You know, how many times? So how would you describe yourself? And... What, what what moment changed you? Those kind of questions. You know, I never ask those kind well, of. Or what's questions. what's the secret source to? interviewing? Or oh, what's the secret <laughs> source to interviewing? Exactly, those kind of facile <laughs> questions that you sometimes get fling at you. And
0: in terms of um, having a list of questions and and mm-hmm. sticking broadly to that, or just going off completely spontaneously, what's your approach to that?
2: Uh, well, I, I like to have the. I like to. Uh, I definitely have a very detailed list of questions in front of me. Very detailed um, that I can scan quite. It's formatted so I can scan it very quickly but I know it's there already. And so that's kind of like having a bit of, you know, it's like having this, the basis of the show there, but then I can sort of go off on a tangent if I want to, because you do hear things that surprise you. And so I'm ready to, I know exactly where I am. I always put a kind of mental marker on where I am if I want to go off on a tangent and where I need to come back to. I realign in my head how the seven or eight chunks that are of the show that are that specific show, the, seven or eight plot elements, how they're going to line up. And if I have to move one around, I can pretty much do that without too much trouble. So if you don't, you don't mind random tangents, have you ever killed a man? Have I ever killed a man? <laughs> I felt like doing it a couple of times. You know the guests, you know the, get, the, uh, the real duty of care with guests at, and and I got to so much trouble. And when you get a guest on who, who will just lose the whole thread and just feel like talking and talking and talking and they do this rhetorical trick that I just hate, which is the andar. I call it the andars where... So, I went on the show and uh, I talked to Dom and Chaz and Charles and, uh, and you when do I come in on that? How do I, What? what, is there any, and they- Never yielding the microphone no. and yet just, just, because you often do it live, don't you? is yeah, Which is, which is extra pressure. And often that end ends up with a, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> stops on that. And what do you do then? I don't know. The worst one like that was Gareth Evans. Gareth Evans. Gareth Evans talked and 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 talked Because what he had to say was very important. Did he feel you were surplus to the process of being interviewed? I was worse than surplus. I was an irritant. And so I'd let him talk because I didn't like to let my guests talk. I let them like to give them long the space to speak in long sentences. And when he finally ran out and had to come up for breath, I'd go for my next question and he'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Can, can, can I just say, like, hearing someone else talk for more than four seconds was utterly intolerable, intolerable to him.
1: Sort of explains
0: Cambodia in a way. He's <laughs> <laughs> supposed Timor. to be. He's supposed yeah. to be good at uh, good at diplomacy. All right, uh, Charles. Yeah. Can we take a moment outside? Yeah, sure. This is a bit too convivial, isn't it? I, I feel that we're going to get in trouble for this. Yeah,
1: I think. Um, well, we're just going to have to edit a lot of it. <laughs>
0: Well, I've got some useful tips, though, for future interrogations. Yeah. What do we do with him from here?
1: Well, I think we've definitely got to turn the screws, but I'm not I'm not sure we've got enough dirt. There is any.
0: one angle we haven't yet explored. Yeah. He's an ABC lifer. Yeah. Our new boss is Peter Dutton. Mm, we have to go there. Yes, yes. So, Richard, you've been at the ABC for a very, very long time, I guess from the big gig on. On and off. Um you have seen a lot of controversies come and go, mm-hmm. I imagine. Mm-hmm. Why does this keep happening at an organisation that surely the biggest criticism of is that it's too innocuous?
2: What, why does what keep happening? Why do controversies keep happening at the ABC? The ABC. Well, it's subject to fairly rigorous public scrutiny, I think, as it should be, Don, don't you? I'm um, Don't work there at the moment. No. no you know, kick no. it, kick it. Oh. No, no, I think it, it, No. It, it's always subject to, uh, you know. Also, I think in the current media environment, um, a lot of people are struggling to make m- money out of... Um, in commercial media, and there's the ABC, publicly funded, doesn't need to put ads in podcasts, that kind of thing. It can look kind of kind of annoying to commercial operators. Oh, yeah, we've be- got to put an ad in this podcast. Let's a- put it in now. Let's put
1: it in right now.
0: So, Richard Fyler, um <laughs> we're talking about the ABC, but how does this affect what you do? Because the pressure can be intense. You're a very high-profile program, um, and you've tended to stay, if I recall, out of the firing line most of the time as opposed to someone like poor old Jonathan Green, does this bear on you as you prepare the program?
2: I try not to get involved in Australia's culture wars. I have my own opinions on the issues of the day. But... I don't want to really be involved in that. I, I don't, n- not at this stage of my life, anyway. I certainly got some strong opinions on what, the things that are going on in Australia. There is no doubt about that. And sometimes I'll sort of, you know, maybe mention a few things in passing on the program, but it's not a forum for my views, as far as I am concerned. And I, I always, I suppose, want people to approach w- what I am putting to air with an open mind and being able to sort of easily peg me in having some place in the political landscape stop, stops gives prejudices, the approach to the program, I think. So I'm quite careful about that. That's exactly I,
0: what you're supposed to say. Yeah. Can we just stop having the, said recording
2: that, and just give us what you really think? Having said that, the, the one public issue I have been very involved in, a political issue, was the campaign for an Australian Republic in 1999, where I campaigned very hard for a yes vote. I was a deputy chair of the Australian Republican movement for a while, and I still feel very strongly about a republic, but I don't tend to talk about that on my radio show.
1: Do you think that actually... The fact that your interviews tend to sort of be wrapped in stories actually protects them a bit from controversy, like
2: some degree. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point, actually. I'm, I'm it's a good point to raise. Yes, uh, so, to some degree. I th- also think that there's a problem with story. Stories are so beguiling, mm. and they have a shape to them, and they tend to sort of fudge reality a little bit around the edges. And it's something I feel I need to mention every once in a while on the program as well, because sometimes you'll get to the end of the program and you've talked about this series of events in someone's life. And it, I, I try to find some kind of a resting point or a point of reflection at the end of that, but I'm often sort of compelled to say, but you know, this is, oh, it might seem, but it's not really over, is it? Cause stuff is never over, is it? No, nothing is ever over. You don't, this idea of closure is really obnoxious and it's just not the way the world is. Things go on and things are messy and there are, there's all kinds of messiness that goes into a narrative that has to be excluded Otherwise, you end up with something that's like, I don't know, one of those, those um, fractal d- diagrams. This is endlessly complex. You can't put the totality of everything into a story. So, there's something about the narrative that makes it beguiling, makes you stay with it to follow the kind of trajectory, the vector of, its, of, of the narrative. This interview will, in
0: fact, never end. We've realised that the only way to become the premier interviewers in Australia <laughs> is to keep you here
2: <laughs> indefinitely. <laughs> Forever. Uh, I hope you don't mind. But, but, but life goes on and there's all sorts of other mm. things that go wrong. Like, I remember, the It's time never I, that neat, is it? No, it's never that neat. Like, you know, I interviewed James Freud from The Models years and years and years ago. And he was in a good place at the time and he'd sort of recovered and he was enjoying family life and was off the, the drink and the drugs. But, um, you know, and that was good. He was so lovely to talk to. He was really such a lovely guy. And then a couple of years later, he died. You know, he, he couldn't stay that way. Because that's, that's the way the world is, and I'm conscious of that, and I was mindful of the need to replay that interview in that kind of broader context, which is not to suggest he somehow failed or anything, because he didn't. Mm. He's just a human being and, and subject to those kind of foibles. But I suppose what I'd rather do, if I'm looking at the kind of mess that more mistakes people have made, I've made mistakes, we've all made so many, so many mistakes in our lives, is to stand beside that person and look at it rather than you know hit them with it. Uh, And do that kind of confrontational thing, which is why I don't have that many politicians on the show. Sometimes I do, and then I'll have to be a bit more confrontational. But it's better to stand beside someone and say, yeah, well, what do you think about that now? How do you reflect on that, That, how that worked out? And then you'll get a much more honest answer. They'll go, yeah, it didn't go so well, I suppose. And looking back on that, I dearly wish I hadn't done it that way. I wish I'd done it differently. Or they're defiant in the face of it all. You've done the show for quite a few
0: years now. Um, What's the plan from here?
2: To keep doing it, because I love doing it. I want to keep doing radio for the rest of my life if I can and uh, make it sustainable so I don't quite have to work quite so hard because I'm getting pretty pretty exhausted by the whole thing and I want to write more books too, so I want to have a little more time for that.
1: You've done quite a few side projects. You've Mm -hmm. got Saga Land coming out. Ghost Empire was released last year. Yeah. Does
2: that show a bit of restlessness? I think what happened was when I I went – my plan was my friend Carl Regiselson and I decided we were going to make this Saga Land radio series about Iceland and about his family connections there this really very moving and poignant family story of his but also about the sagas of Iceland so we went there to make that and while I was there it was kind of a really good time out because we, we travelled right around the island we did that trip we did most of our work on the west coast but there was a couple of days where we spent going around the east coast to loop right around the island and up into the north and I, I kind of had a bit of moment of reflection I sort of thought about it for a bit I was ready to pitch my book Ghost Empire to a publisher at that point. And I thought, you know, I'm in my 50s now. I've just just hit my 50s. I actually feel like I'm at the peak of what I can do. So I had this kind of, felt this sense that I might just go really hard for a while and do as much as I possibly could while I'm in this good space. And achieve as many things as i possibly can and so i set out to do all these extra projects and they all happened which has been (laughs) incredibly hard work uh but but really worthwhile the writing process is so nice you guys have done this haven't Mm, you mm. you know when you're broadcasting it's being very social and you use Mm. up a lot of social energy and i'm guessing you're you're like me We're, we're all introverts everyone i know in media and comedy are introverts you need time alone time to uh just disengage from other people and so you can concentrate your social energy so sitting and writing a book is really lovely it's just very pleasant. You know, you can be alone, doing in your underpants in, the, in, the, in your own home. Ideally, there's the cat, your own coffee machine, that kind of thing. Just that quietness of that and the intensity and immersion that that gives you is really lovely. Do you really ride in your underpants? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll have footage of that, won't we? From our that could be very useful. Yeah.
0: So, Richard, you said that interviewing is what what you love. That's what you want to keep doing. Yeah. Um, can I ask you, are you interested in interviewing for, for Border Force, in conducting interviews oh, like be, these ones? Proper
2: interrogations. Yeah. There, where, where, where I can just throw out namby-pamby ABC editorial policies out the window. There gone, are done. Thumb screws. There are, are all kinds of devices. Mm. It's actually really fun, Richard. So, like, normally I'd have to have an hour of penetrating questions to get someone to weep. But... I can get that to that point much more quickly. Electrodes. Electrodes. Yeah. Are you in? I'm in. That sounds great. Richard
0: Viler has been wonderful. Thank you, gents. Extreme Vetting is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Written, presented and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And to get in touch with us or for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app. And remember,
1: no one is safe.